Welcome to the Audiation in the Wild podcast with your hosts, Bo Talifer and Eric Rasmussen. Hi, thanks for joining us for this episode of Audiation in the Wild. My name is Bo Talifer. I'm here with my co-host, Eric Rasmussen. In this episode, we're actually really fortunate to bring you a conversation with Bert Ligon. Bert Ligon is Director of Jazz Studies at University of South Carolina. I first found out about Bert through his book, Connecting Chords with Linear Harmony. That book probably had more impact on my uh, improvisation ability uh, more than any other single source that I've come across. Um, really gave me the ability to improvise over chord changes in a way that I couldn't do before. So if you're if you're a jazz musician or interested in jazz, I think you'll get a lot out of this. For the guitar players in the audience too, we actually get into the weeds, uh, some of the complexities involved in learning and studying the guitar. And so I think the guitar players among us will enjoy this as well. But without any further ado, let's get into it with Bert. Hey, Bert. Thanks for coming and joining us. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good morning. Yeah, morning for me still. <laughs> it's two where I am, almost. Thanks for signing on early. Yeah. So All you right. can hear me? Pretty good. Yeah, yeah, we can hear you pretty good. It sounds good. You know, it looks like you got quite a setup there. You got a little grand piano and a lot of, I see a Fender amp, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, yeah, a few things. Yeah. Fenders on the wall, uh, keyboards, yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, so, uh, thanks Thanks so much for joining us. Um, we just thought we'd uh, have a fun little chat about your work. It was very inspiring to me. Um, you I've read all of your books and quite a bit of the materials on your website. And I was sharing them with Eric recently and uh, Eric's generally really fascinated with anything that helps people hear harmony better. And that's why, that's why your work kind of sprung to mind. So I thought maybe, uh, could you give us a little bit of your, your background? I have a little bit of a bio in your books, but I'd rather hear it from you. Maybe just about uh, your, your journey with music and, and what you're up to nowadays. Yeah, I started music kind of late in the game. I didn't really, um, you know, grow up playing it as a kid, you know, with lessons and things. I regret that, but it's too late to do anything about that, you know. So, but, but when I decided I wanted to be in, uh, in music because, you know, I was working a construction job trying to figure out what I want to do with my life, but I was making notes of little tunes in my head on my breaks. And I thought, gosh, I wonder what I should do, you know. So I. I, I bought a piano and started practicing, you know. I figured that as a musician, piano would be the most helpful thing to do. So, you know, number line, lace it all, all out there. And, and I don't regret a minute of it. So I came late to the game, but I practiced hard and tried to catch up, still trying to catch up. And um, eventually worked as a professional musician and composer. I did a lot of TV commercials. That's probably not in that, in that bio maybe, but you know, all the stuff you have to do to pay the bills, whatever it was from a bar mitzvah to a, you know, a taco commercial on, the, on TV, you know, and at some point I decided I, I really wanted to teach. I, I love teaching. And a lot of people would ask me things about teaching and I thought, well, maybe I could do this. So I went back to school way late. So I, I don't have, I, I didn't do things on the right schedule. You know, uh, it, it seems to turn out pretty good for you. <laughs> yeah. So you went, you studied at uh, North Texas, if I'm not mistaken. I did. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And you were, you were studying piano uh, while yeah. you were there. 
And then where did, where did guitar enter the picture for you? I'm curious. Uh, I've been teaching here in North and South Carolina for 30 years. And uh, yeah. I think when I moved here, I didn't own a guitar. Um, but in improv classes that, you know, to have kids that come in and they play a bar chord for, for an A7 chord. And I go, well, you know, first of all, we could yeah. leave off those, those bottom strings and maybe find some other things. So I'd find some voices and teach them a major sevens or something, you know, and then just um, every time I needed to give an example, I'd have to push the piano player off the bench to play it on the piano. So I just bought a cheap guitar just for yeah. improv class, you know, yeah. just so I could, I could interject a chord every now and then, or maybe play a note, but I never took it home, never practiced. And then I don't know, at some point, I mean, it takes a lot of work to, to really learn an instrument. And I just, I'd already done that on piano. I couldn't, couldn't feature doing that on another instrument, but I, I finally did. I took it home and, um, and got obsessed, you know, there's no doubt your piano background makes it easier. I've seen a lot of people with a piano background pick up the guitar makes a lot more sense to them usually than the other way around. Right. Um, and I, I think that's such a, just a great tool for guitarists in general to have some piano well, I mean, background in all degrees require everybody to learn piano because piano was so helpful for everything. So certainly made a lot of sense because I, I didn't have to teach myself music on the guitar. I just had to find the things I already knew, you know, and there, yeah. were, there were days that I would sit there and play stuff on the piano and try to, and you know, with the guitar in the lap and try to translate things back and forth. And, and then, then there comes a point where I'm playing stuff on the guitar trying to go, Oh, I gotta, I gotta relearn this on the piano. Cause <laughs> yeah. So my experience was backwards of that. I, uh, you know, I was trained as a classical guitarist throughout school when I was younger, and there was always a piano in the house. But my brother, you know, he was the piano player, yeah. and uh, I think at some point I wasn't supposed to touch his piano, so I think <laughs> I wanted to do that more than anything in the world. But I would always just learn melodies as I was going, right. and I, I just found it very useful for uh, you know, st studying theory on the piano is infinitely easier than the guitar. Right. I think a lot, just the visual display makes a lot more sense. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Although, uh, you know, when I first started playing guitar, I wasn't like going, oh, I got to do scale work or arpeggio work. I was just playing lines that I knew, you know, and then, but when it came time to, to sit down and do arpeggios and scale work, I'd kind of, I could do it because <laughs> yeah, I knew where these lines were, you know, so anyway, you know, oh, that's great. I, I do feel pretty comfortable as a guitar player now. And, and lately, I, I mean, I never go to a gig without both instruments, you know, yeah. And, and there's some gigs I play mostly piano, some, some gigs I play, you know, mostly guitar or half and half. So it's kind of changed. Yeah, they're, they're both uh, fantastic instruments, you know, both really strong instruments in a rhythm section. And uh, right. I actually like some accompanying some soloists can be um, a lot different on a guitar or piano, depending on who you're accompanying. And it can be cool to have access to different sounds. Right. Well, when we're doing trio or quartet and I bring a guitar, I play part of it on piano new solos comes in, I switch the guitar, it's a new texture. It's like, you know, and uh, I've, I've done it, I did it last night where I started comping for the second solo stone guitar. And then when it came time to trade eights for the drums, I just had the guitar. So it was like a new voice in the band all the way around. Yeah. You know, and then I played yeah. the head out, you know, on a new instrument. So One of the things I always found really fascinating with, um, with the guitar, especially with jazz or with the, uh, maybe contemporary classical music, music that has more interesting, complex voicings. Some things on the guitar actually end up being quite easy, like moving things up chromatically. And on the piano, that can be a bit more uh, work yeah. to get the same thing going. But I've always found, uh, yeah, that's so interesting with, with guitar improv. You can get someone to improv with a chord shape 
and they really don't need to think about what they're doing, just how symmetrical the fretboard is. But right, right. I love that aspect of it. Yeah. I, I, it was invaluable to me when I was in North Texas. All my piano lessons were classical. Yeah. So I didn't, I didn't take any jazz piano lessons. They just weren't set up to do that at the time. And I don't regret a minute of that. I had a teacher who knew absolutely nothing about jazz. And, you know, the guy won the Chopin competition when he was 16. He was very focused in one little area, but he was so good. And I learned so much about music from him. Um, so, uh, that's actually a really good point. I'd, I'd love to hear you more talk, talk more about that. Just the idea of having uh, different teachers and seeking people out who are almost specialists at what they do. I find um, that's really healthy for people to do. You know, you find someone like that who's got such a great skill set at what he does. You can kind of mine that a little bit and, and spend some time with it. Right, right. Well, yeah. I learned a lot from them. I still, you know, I mean, I, I learned from other teachers in the jazz area too, but, but really we talk more about music. I'm not talking about, you know, notes or scales or chords or anything like that, but just shaping music, you know? And I mean, I learned about how to conduct an orchestra, a big band from how we conducted my own piano playing, playing Mozart or Brahms or something like that, you know? So, you know, yeah. I, owe, I, owe, I owe him a lot for that, you know? So. That's really cool. That's really cool. Um, as a as a fun side note to that, um, most of my piano uh, experience has been uh, actually working with the outlines from connecting chords on the piano. And I got I got okay at the piano from from doing that, and then you know playing some Bach on top of that. And uh, yeah, that's uh, it's just been very interesting because I I didn't intentionally set out to create a systematic study of the piano, but just from learning those lines, you know, in all keys and doing that, you get, you can move around pretty good after, you know, five years of that or so. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And now people at work think of me as a piano player and I do not think of myself as a piano player, you know, as a centerpiece, yeah. but, but you sound okay when the lines are in your ear and you, and you trust your fingers. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of really good piano players who aren't piano players and you know, sax players will sit down, but they've done their homework, you know. I would include Eric in that. Eric, Eric yeah. probably would say he's not a piano player, but uh, I've heard him play a lot, and he can move around on that thing. What is, what is your instrument then, Eric? I, I trumpet and traditional oh. jazz, but I, I boom check uh, all these songs for little kids. I teach babies up to seven, yeah. eight-year-olds, so the babies, they're absorbing, and then eventually they imitate some of the, you know, tones or rhythms and songs. And then they eventually get to understand. But I've got to the point where I can get two-year-olds to understand tonic and dominant. Yeah. Just by ending on the second to the last note, it's like, that can't end there. So that's the earliest. But by three or four, I've got them doing yes, no, uh-oh, and I don't care. You know, one, four, five, and five of five. And, I, and sometimes in two weeks, I get all four functions with a four or five-year-old. It's right. like I didn't know that in college, right. <laughs> you know, right. and they're, they're using these silly words. And eventually they do that in major and minor. It takes just a few weeks sometimes. Right. Uh, you know, then we switch over to the, the you know, the real terms. I, you guys don't want to use the baby words anymore. <laughs> no. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so we, we I started this harmonic sequence of, of teaching, you know, really young so that they can create and develop yeah. independently if they have those fundamental sounds in their, you know, in their repertoire. Uh, yeah, I'm certain that, that we start too late with kids, but, but they can understand it so much earlier. You know, and, and they don't think anything about it. You know, I taught at Suzuki camps for um, maybe about eight years, you know, Suzuki Institutes in the summer, and just amazed at how young these kids 
could understand some kind of concepts. I mean, we didn't have to complicate it or use, like you say, intimidating terms, but they, they got the, they got the idea. And, uh, um, at South Carolina, do you know Wendy Valerio? I do I know Wendy, yeah. And her husband, John, plays jazz. He was my uh, jazz composition teacher uh, oh, yeah. at, Tem at Temple oh, yeah, when, yeah. when they were there. So, uh, yeah. but at any she rate. here a long time, yeah. Yeah, she's, oh, in there. she's a yeah. She's somebody who's a real strong uh, uh, member of my tribe. You know the the Gordon learning sequences and music and the you know audiation, uh, right. if you know that term. And I do. Yeah. Um, so did you know Gordon? Yes, I I studied with him for for three years at, at Temple. He he's. He was down here in South Carolina for a while and would come by my office kind of regularly and, and uninvited just to argue ear training things. Yes, so. of course. Yeah, that's part of what we want to do in this podcast is argue on behalf of him sometimes and yeah. argue against him sometimes because some of it seems a little stodgy or too, uh, uh, you know, anal, for lack of a better word, you know, too. Uh, and, you know, my my uh, harmonic learning sequence that I'm, I've been working on for 15 years or so, just as a way into to learning harmony, avoiding the tonal patterns at first. You don't have to learn tonal patterns to learn harmony. Uh, and it's helpful to, in addition to, you know, uh, the, the, the standard way uh, to do that. But I, but you know, like I said, I can teach you a snow, uh-oh, and I don't care <laughs> in, in two weeks. Four, yeah, maybe just, maybe just for, for Bird and, and for anyone else who's listening, um, Eric's general framework for, for beginning students on uh, learning to hear changes by ear. He'll, he'll be playing a familiar song for them, like Mary Had a Little Lamb. Right. He'll stop the song maybe on the last note or right before the last note. Um, so you should be expecting to hear the tonic chord. And he right. just starts asking them, like, can I end the song there? And, and initially, it's linked to the melody. They know, they know the, the last note of the melody should be coming. And eventually, you know, really quickly, he's just phasing out the melody and you're only hearing the changes. And it's really wild how, yeah, just young, you know, people of all ages, but especially these really young kids, you wouldn't think they could learn to hear functions. But when it's done in the context of a song they're familiar with, they, they learn it really rapidly. And, how uh, much of that is, um, is there a sense of a relationship of the time of phrases too? And I think it's almost, at first, it's almost completely dependent on that. And right. that's what's so cool about it is that in the in the beginning, like if you use Mary Had a Little Lamb, I know that's what Eric traditionally uses to get it started. You know, it uses, it's a standard. It's a folk standard, right? <laughs> Which I love. I, I, it's great if you look at it like that. But that ending, that ending phrase, dun, 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 the tonic chord there at the end is, is just totally connected to the form and the phrase of the song. And that's, that's another part of Eric's work that I found so interesting is that um, it's done in the context of a song. So it's, it's something they can hear while the tune's going on and later on while, you know, he's just playing chords for them on the piano. But because uh, it's one thing to hear, you know, tonic and dominant outside of a tune, but you want to be able to hear it while form of a tune's going on because that's where it's going to really take flight. Uh, well, even with some of my university students, uh, maybe they'll never hear this, but some of them... <laughs> <laughs> You know, get caught up in, in, you know, some elaborate chords and some, you know, harmony, and they they disconnect it in their minds from how it puts together to make a phrase. 
there's a reason there's a predominant chord and a dominant chord and a tonic chord here because this creates some kind of four or eight measure phrase and it's part of the piece. And, 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 and they don't understand why I reject or react negatively <laughs> to some of their, uh, some of their reharmonizations. It's like, man, we kind of got things backwards. You actually are putting the emphasis on the wrong syllable sometimes, you know? So, so that's, I mean, that's why I was asking that because it's, I, I totally agree. You yeah, can't take yeah. them apart from each other. You know? I, I love to hear what both of you guys think of this, but I've often been, been thinking about this as, you know, there's these different, uh, there's these different contexts or different scales of magnification you can be on, you know, like the most micro you can be at is the, the individual rhythm, like the one note rhythm or, or the individual pitch that you're playing in A right now. But, you know, on, on the macro, it's like what's going on in this whole performance tonight or this whole album. And there's all this space in between and something that's often forgotten about it something with soloing that's so common is being able to tell a story through the solo. Mm -hmm. And so you're, you're not just thinking of your solo as the next lick I'm going to play, but you're thinking of, okay, this is going to be a three chorus solo and there's something that's, that's growing and building. And, I, and from what I've seen in my own, uh, I guess you want to say journey, trying to learn how to get this stuff together is that often if there's a problem with the playing, it's because I'm not aware of a certain uh, context. I'm not aware of the form well enough or even it could be a stylistic thing or a rhythmic thing, but there's something that I'm probably focusing too much on and there's something else I'm neglecting. And usually when something clicks, like your book did with, the, uh, with connecting chords, um, being able to weave the changes, or weave the lines through the changes and, and get that harmonic specificity, um, it's always something I'm, something's brought to my attention about some aspect of the musical context I, I was neglecting before. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, that, that, that kind of stuff's been on my mind for a while. Cause then you start, once you, once you get a handle on that, you're like, well, what am I, what am I neglecting now? <laughs> Where yeah. else could I go? Yeah. I, um, I'm still working on that. Yeah. It's just, just that balance. And, um, you know, I work with my students on it too. So we're all thinking about it, but you know, even if you take any simple outline or a triadic thing or, or an embellishment of the melody, sometimes you want it to be, incredibly complex because of where it is in a phrase and other times you want it to be really simple and then other times you just want to not play because a drummer needs to do that fiddle for this whole thing to work out you know and, and yeah and, and you know the thing about jazz is we don't always make the perfect choices maybe some people do you know, maybe really good Bill Evans recordings, all the choices. I was going to say, Evans but, might, but, might have come close to that. <laughs> yeah, but, but there are times that he doesn't. And, I, you know, I can show you recordings where, like, mm, no, he didn't do it right that night, you know? Yeah. So, you know, so, um, but, but the point is, is that, that, yeah, you're right. You have to pull back and you have to think, oh, yeah, I need to play this note here to make this chord sound. I need to play, and I can play all these embellishments and stuff, but maybe I don't need to. You know, so we actually practice that in, in lessons with students where we play the same line and it may be the melody of the tune. Yeah. Twice in a row. And, and this phrase we're going to play it where we're really playing it as simply as we can to really communicate the melody or the outline or whatever it is. And the next time we're taking all the embellishment, uh, we're playing it simple with no embellishments. And the next time we're trying to smother it with embellishments. And then we've like practiced at least our two choices. So then an improv when we are trying to create this whole sculpture, we've act, we've practiced more than just playing licks and notes and things to get through the changes or practice playing the melody. We practice playing them with several different approaches. So when we come to that crossroads, here's that B section. What do I need to do now? We've been thinking, well, I've been really busy. 
Uh-huh. So maybe I need to really be really simple here, or maybe I've been really simple, so now it's time to really start putting some you know thicker embellishments in. But that is that kind of pulling back that you were talking about. And yeah. Yeah, but I mean, just you know, like everything else context. needs to be practiced, you know. I, which is a, which is a, that, I mean, that'd be a great segue into um, the the common definition or knowledge of improv. Almost uh, from what I see is people people tend to think there's not preparation going on, and whenever you talk to someone who can really do it, like whether it's yourself or Evans or all these great jazz musicians that we all know and love, it, there's it's almost the exact opposite. It's meticulously studied down to the point where it's just non-conscious anymore it's not not volitional they can just do it but but they've they've really taken it apart so much and i'd I'd love to hear your thoughts on that because uh um, that's to me that's where etudes fit in designing etudes and that's what your your work talks about that that comes up in in a couple of your books right i think students should write their own etudes as much as they can because if, if playing really well written music made us all great composers or improvisers I'd play like Chopin every day, you know, because I played a lot of Chopin or, or Mozart or Bach. So you have to do more than just, you know, play through the notes. You have to really be thinking about the construction of it. Um, and so writing an etude for yourself kind of does those kind of things. You can have an agenda and you can practice changing gears. That's, you know, that, that kind of thing. A lot of people who practice, like I said, just, just good lines and they can plug in the good lines, but they're not thinking about how is this going to fit for the architecture of, of a solo. And so the improv part to me is all that preparation. Then I can make decisions. What is it that I want to play at this point? You know, and yeah. sometimes, it's, sometimes it's binary. Sometimes it's as simple as, um, do I want to play simple or complex? Do I want to play rhythmically simple or complex? Do I, do I, do I want to create a polyrhythm here? Do I want to set up the beat really strongly? So that when I do my polyrhythm, it has that contrast. So and you can feel it in a performance situation too. Cause sometimes when I'm, uh, my aunt's an amazing singer and we've, we've done uh, quite a few little, you know, just little jazz gigs around here. And I'm, I'm just a guitarist accompanying a singer in this situation. And you can, there are tunes that you know, well, that she'll call, but you really have to, if you're going to take a solo on it, depending on her energy or the energy of the room, and you can feel what's appropriate, for what's coming up for this song. Like maybe the room, you know, you need the solo to have a bit of energy. People would respond to it. Or if you just, you know, been going off in a bunch of other tunes, you might want to pull it back and, and kind of control that. And I, I love that aspect of the playing because it, it's so different than just thinking uh, about the, the technical parts of the song. Right. It's, right. you know, it's, it's a different level to kind of sit at. And right. the, the best musicians I've played at, they seem to sit totally at that level. Like whenever I ask them about notes or anything, they're just like, oh. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think I mean, so when you're on the gig, when you're on the gig, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think a lot of those guys know a lot. Some of those guys who won't talk about it do know a lot more about it, but they seem how somehow think it diminishes its magic if you say, yeah. Which, which I, <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure. I, I, I'd love to hear more thoughts uh, that you have about that, but I think I'd fall more on your side of that equation where there's, there's a place for this analytical technical study and there's a place for this more. Um, emotional or intuitive part, or however you want to call it, and I don't think it it actually is fruitful to 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 sacrifice one or to say one's not worth right. your time. That never made sense to me. Well, it's it's you know if there's two sides of the brain or something, you know, there's inspirational one and the uh, um, I think they can be guides to each other. I think my pure spontaneous inspirational guy can can go off but my intellectual side has armed that emotional side 
with some really good details so I can communicate. If I was going to be a writer of words, of English, I know how to speak. I am, we are improvising now using nouns and verbs and adverbs and adjectives and all kinds of things. And we're yeah. determining how complicated each sentence is, all by intuition. You know, we're not thinking about it. But as a writer, and I am a writer, I write love words, you know, I spend a lot of time thinking about how sentences communicate exactly what I want. And if you're writing a paragraph, you think, you think seriously about how these sentences construct a paragraph. Prep, you know, sentence that prepares something, a sentence that does it again, and then here's the one that gives you, bam! This is the this is one that turns on the light. You know, so I, I do the same thing with with improv. There are times that I'm over there at the piano, and it's just purely the inspired part of me going and going. And when that wears out, then some usually I hit a wall where there's something I can't do, or something I didn't do that I wanted to do, or something I want to dig deeper. And so the analytical guy comes in and goes, "I got this." You know, and he kind of helps me through it. And that's when that guy starts talking to me about, you know, details of the changes or what are the other options that I can do for this chord or sound or transition or rhythmic thing or, you know, multitude of things. And now it's all I mean, that's that's how the brain, too, is also a very practical way to just start trying new things, you know, because if you're kind of maybe you're playing the stuff that, you know, and you're quite inspired and then 20 minutes into your session or whatever, or into your practice session or performance, you start running out of steam and you need some new ideas. It's nice to know that there are some actual, you know, ways you can start almost purposely experimenting stuff to get some traction on stuff. Right. Uh, So conversely, a day may be where I come in. I don't really have that. I'm not like creatively inspired, I'm not necessarily uninspired. Just like, it's just time to get down to the nitty gritty, you know? Yeah. Am I getting the sound out of the guitar? Is it the pick? Is it this hand? Is it, you know, whatever the details are, can I really move around on these arpeggios? And then, so, you know, you work that way. And then on the gig, all should go well, you know. But there are times that I will practice. We're talking about the structure of of an entire solo. If I come in here and I I, I practice on all the things you are for 45 minutes, I'm really not practicing a, uh, a shape of a solo, right? Yeah. Cause I've just played those changes for 45 minutes, which is not hard to do, you know, when it's, cause it's, you know, a lot of fun to do. So at some point I need to, uh, in another day, I need to pull back and, and practice three courses and stop. Yeah. And then start again and, and practice how I'm going to shape the whole thing. And, and like you were talking about pulling way back to where I can see the whole course, you know, in front of me and why I'm doing this and why I'm shifting gears and, you know, yeah. 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 So right, all the improv definitions say with little or no preparation, and I don't know what that means. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've only found the opposite. I mean, uh, I, this whole thing kind of started with me. With uh, I've told Eric this story, but uh, I was listening to a, a lesson that Pat McG- Pat Metheny is giving a student, and someone uploaded this online. I'm sure without his permission, but uh, they both take a solo. It sounds like they're playing Mr. PC. They both take a solo, and then Pat gives them some feedback, and the feedback is that. I mean, the rhythm's not cool, but also that he can't bring the sound of the, the changes out through the line. And uh, I think it was in my early 20s I heard this. And I was like, huh, I wonder what he's talking about there. Because I, I, I was a decent musician at the time, but I couldn't, I couldn't really fly over changes yet. I could, if you played a static tonic chord, I could improvise pretty well. Yeah. Maybe here a five once in a while. So he said, listen to Charlie Parker. So I started listening to tons of Charlie Parker. And then I realized, wow, I really can't do this, what he's saying. Like yeah. I, I can play arpeggios, but they don't sing. And right. I can't, I definitely can't weave through the changes. So I just kind of went on a, 
a bender. I'm trying to find, uh, I didn't have a term for it, but I think you call it harmonic specificity in your book. Right. Yes. Yeah. I was just trying to find some information. How do you do this? Cause I, I knew I could hear it in Bach. I could hear it in Mozart. Um, but, uh, Eventually, I found your book. Someone online recommended uh, your book. And it was very odd the way the process worked because I just learned the lines. Right. And I wasn't really expecting it to do what was advertised originally, uh, but it really did what it was advertised to do. I started hearing right. lines and you know, at first just over certain changes, but then, um, yeah, it just really starts getting into your ear and you start predicting. You can, you know, the, the first line where you go, um, Da, 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 da. You, you can change instead of hearing that last note as being part of the, the one chord, you could start hearing that being part of a bunch of other chords. And it sort of just totally changed the way that I played guitar. And um, yeah, I, I did a lot of work with this on the piano. And that's most of my piano background is just doing these outlines. But have you seen similar things happen with students that have, that have come to study with you where no, they, they improv a bit, but these outlines really start doing things for them harmonically. Yeah, I've, uh, I've, I've been teaching in South Carolina for 30 years, and, you know, the kids I had 30 years ago are 50 years old and teaching in universities now. And, and we just had some of them come back and play a concert. We played a concert um, this Saturday with Veronica Swift. You know the singer? Yeah. I saw, I saw on your, I think I saw on your website, actually. I, uh, I saw her name on your site. She's so good. Uh, anyway. You know, but some of these guys stood up in solos like, you know, yeah. You know, I remember when they couldn't get through anything, you know, so, so uh, yeah, it, it really helps them hearing-wise, too. It's, one of these kids came back and told me that I mean, now when they listen to Parker, they listen to somebody else, they're not confused about what they're doing. It doesn't mean they can do it in real time with them, but they know what those sounds are. They go, I recognize that, you know, and they, sure. and um transcribing becomes easier because for, for one, you kind of, in a sense, know a lot of what they're going to do. You just don't know how they're going to use it. You know, yeah. we're not surprised anymore. If I transcribed a sentence and it had a noun and a verb in it, that's not the surprise anymore. It's just like, Oh, what are you going to do with that? So, yeah. so they know at least what to look for. And they've already pre-heard what the, you know, they know what those symbols means on the page now too. You know, it's not some abstract. It's like a sound. Exactly. Yeah. Which is, I mean, which is another reason we contacted you. Cause I mean, I don't know if you use the word audiation in your book, but I, I like the term. And I think um, most of the, the great professors that I've met or great musicians, they all talk about it. You know, can you hear the lines that you're playing in your head? Can you sing them? Are, are you, are you aware? Can you sing the, the, the resting tone or can you sing C if we're in the case, uh, if we're in the key of C and uh, I think there's a little pyramid in one of your books where you talk about, you know, being able to see here. And could you describe that for us? I think you, yeah, there's like three skills that are connected here. Um, it doesn't matter what's on top, but for me, it's oral. You know, yeah, yeah, because that's what the ultimate goal is. We hear it, so if I hear it, I should be able to picture what it feels like to physically play it. So there's that physical aspect, and I should be able to uh, um, uh, read. We're, we're you know university musicians, we should be able to read it too. How 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 well you read on guitar. <laughs> Pretty well, yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean classical, classical background. background yeah. so, um, but the classical yeah. background also, you play it like when you first train in classical, it's mostly open position, and right. there's a big lack of training in the rest of the neck. So that yeah. you know, I just had to develop my own um, right. uh, boot camp for that. But it's it's fine. It's great. So when I'm looking at written music, I want to be able to. I should be able to hear what it sounds like by looking at it on the page. I should yeah. be able to while I'm looking at it 
imagine what it physically feels like to play it on whatever instrument I'm playing, you know? Uh-huh. And I, I used to, I mean, the first time I looked at a Beethoven piano concerto that I played, uh, I was on a bus trip. I got the music and had to take a bus home. And I read the whole thing on the bus and imagine what it was like to play it without errors, you know? And, and just kind of read along in time, just imagining. And, and then when I got home was the first time I actually physically sight read it. And it was way better than it would have been had I not taken this first chance just to look at it. But I was hearing the notes. I was singing the lines in my head. Yeah, and what Gordon would call notationally audiating. Right. I didn't know that term when I wrote the book. I think I met Gordon and yeah. heard the term audiate. But of course, this is, I've always heard sure. this theory training thing. That's a good, good term. One of the final exam for my theory class, my jazz theory class, is um, I'll play them a C chord and have them sing modulations to all the closely related keys and back. Like all the, yeah, the, the outlines I've been working on the, uh, uh, I've been working on the, um, well, all of those, but I I don't know why I've been really into the two, five of three, because it's in a lot of tunes. And once you get that one down, a lot of tunes are easier to move around. And it's a beautiful sound too. It's absolutely beautiful. I think it's the hardest uh, to hear. I'm not really sure why, but, it is in a lot of tunes, but it's in fewer tunes than, than we go to two all the time. We go to four, you can't get, you know, right off the bat. We go to five a lot of times, a lot of tunes that the turnaround is a two, five, and a five, and the two, five back to one. We all know tunes like that. But going to three is a, a little bit more unusual. I'm not sure exactly why that's harder yeah. to hear. Generally, yeah. it's harder to hear. And I've, I've read through a, a, a lot of Bach, and he usually goes everywhere. But if he leaves off one key, it might be the key of three. Yeah, yeah I mean that that is so, interesting because uh, I I learned to hear the, the 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 two five of two very early. Mm-hmm. I think that was the first one. I remember yeah. I went I went for a guitar lesson and he my my guitar teacher we were playing some Latin tune, you know C major seven, you know C sharp diminished. And I went home and I I wasn't a piano player, but I knew where the notes were. So I was like, okay, this is C major seven, clunk clunk clunk. As soon as I played that C-sharp diminished chord, I was like, this is it. This is for me. You know, I was in high school at the time. Like, this is so beautiful. This is unreal. Um, But even even after finding your book, yeah, I think that one one is easier to hear. The the 2-5-3 is so beautiful, though. It's got a really cool sound. Yeah, I really like that one a lot. So um, we sing a lot in class and and, and try to get these to where they're um, stuck in here rather than just a concept on paper. Yeah. I used to do this thing um, in high school. I mean, I was I was playing a lot of guitar at the time. You'd be sitting in English class, and you know, not you have nothing to do. You just sit there and sing the song you've been working on and visualize it on the fretboard. And I did this for years in high school, and uh, I think that's a really valuable skill because any any yeah. any good guitar player that I come across, they can they have that association where they can hear the melody and they immediately can visualize a fretboard and it's interesting because i can't visualize much else i mean yeah. a piano and a guitar but if you ask me to picture you know the walk i went on this morning and to draw a scene that i saw it's not the same as that part of the yeah. brain i can't picture that kind of stuff but uh, the fretboard's been kind of burned in there and similar thing with the notation you know if you put a, a notation in front of me i can i can uh, generally pretty well see how it's going to go on the guitar before i before i touch it Right. Well, that's good. That's that triangle I'm talking about. You know, yeah. some people have stronger areas. We had, you know, a lot of people who grew up in wind departments and high school and stuff, and they could read everything, but they couldn't hear as well. 
you know, yeah. and uh, and they could physically play, but they couldn't hear, so they needed to work on that. Got a guitar player. Some of those guys came in who didn't have a lot of reading background, but sure. like you, they they really physically understood their instrument and they could play by ear a lot better. And so everybody has different strengths that they need to kind of keep. You know, are you aware of? Uh, are you aware of Jeffrey McFadden? He's a professor at the, I believe, University of Toronto. He's. Um, hmm. He's a classical guitarist, and he's done a lot of work with the, I believe, designing the curriculum for the Royal Conservatory's uh, classical guitar curriculum. But he's got a he's got a paper slash book. Um, it's on the organization of the fret board, and he believes that fret board organization for guitarists should be taught much more systematically than it is, which I'm a big fan of because it's mostly done in open position, and it's great because there's a lot of repertoire for that. But often when, especially if you're getting into like jazz, but if you think of Joe Pass, how he plays, everything's movable, you know, and everything's very structured. It's actually using the strength of the guitar in terms of viewing things as relationships from all the strings. And uh, yeah, he's got a great, he's got a great little, uh, I, I think it's a dissertation on, okay. on this, but I'm a big fan of, of uh, his ideas on this. And um it kind of translates because the piano is such a systematic way to view things just on a totally just, you know, high to low viewpoint. Right. And uh, that did a lot for me. But I find a lot of guitar players don't get the chance to systematically, um, whether it scales, that you need some kind of system to simplify your thinking on the right. fingerboard because it can get a little out of hand if you, uh, if you don't have one. This is um, something I'm considering writing a book on. <laughs> and and, and I, um, I, know, I know it seems like, no, you're a piano player. You can't write a book on guitar. But in, in a sense, that would be almost my selling point is that I'm a piano player. And I, I systematically, I have a systematic way of teaching myself guitar. I wasn't going to waste a lot of time, uh, you know, doing, you know. So I've spent a lot of time thinking about this. What is the simplest way? What, why am I even playing this line in this position or all? Because for me, with this music or any kind of music, um, you can play notes in a lot of places on the guitar, but only some certain ones are going to feel the, match the articulations you want for this line, you know? So I have students come in and they're playing all these things here that they can't, or they're crossing strings when they should have pulled off or, you know, phrasing and stuff like that have a great deal to do with why I make choices where I'm playing it. Cause actually, I mean, this goes back to the improv discussion. When I am actually improvising in a, in a real situation, I, I certainly am thinking about pitches but almost more than that, I'm thinking about a rhythm and an articulation first. That's what hits my head. <laughs> we're, so we're, is... we're laughing because we, we actually interviewed, we interviewed Hal Galper a couple of days ago who, who played with Dizzy. And, Hal, yeah. and Dizzy's thing was, uh, Hal told us, Dizzy told him, you know, play, uh, think of a rhythm and put a note to it. Don't do it the other way around. Don't think of, don't think of a note and put a rhythm to it. And that it's, makes so much sense. It, it makes because exactly you're thinking phrases when you do that. Yeah, right. So people <laughs> yeah. ask me, "What do you think when you're improvising?" They're looking for you know a scale and freaking low green sharp two or some crap like that. I'm just going. <laughs> I'm thinking. They go, "That sounds like drums." I go, "Well, that's what I'm thinking." You know. I know. And then and then oh, it's a D minor chord. Well, I can use the notes of D minor to get to that articulation. So just being able to play the note totally. in the R is really not the key because. If I played that F in the wrong spot with the wrong finger, it's not. I'm not going to get that rhythm or that articulation. I stopped the kid the other day and I go, 
he played played an A. I don't remember what finger it didn't really matter, but he played an A, and they go, "That's the wrong fingering for that A." Which seems funny because on guitar you can play an A with any finger anywhere you want to, but for the context where he was, he was completely out of any kind of scale position known to man, you know, and he wasn't going to be able to get anything fluid from the next thing. So yeah, I mean, but that comes back to me to thinking about. Art- I mean, be, like for example, like taking a solo on like a bebop tune on on guitar where something you know some kind of changes from like a parker tune for example i often find that what people are doing on the guitar where they're learning the entire shape of a scale over the whole fretboard is not as useful as knowing um uh, smaller sections of scales and how the the individual chords connect with each other because that's what you're going to have to be doing you're only going to be over this one chord for a split second so why why initially train this whole visualization of an entire scale over the neck you almost need to train the connection of, uh, I mean, I've, I've done this with your outlines um, in, in different keys, but I'd love to hear what you think about, about that because. Uh, well, even if I was just going to play a, a, a tune in E flat, you know, I've got this, I've got this range of notes without even moving my fingers from one fret. Right. Mm-hmm. I can play from this low G up to this high B flat. Why do I don't really need to go up and down the neck. Right. Yep. So I've got most subconscious when I'm playing on the video because I realize I'm, my mouth is moving. Oh, I <laughs> think we're just using audio, so your your mouth is free. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm sitting here, I'm watching my mouth, you know, because yeah. I'm singing the, the rhythm. I mean, I'm, all that's right here, right? Yeah. Uh, but I'm playing things that can be articulated the way I want them up. I can do the same thing. I can move it up into several different scale positions and still get a lot of mileage without being inefficient with my fingers on the fret. Right? Well, that's exactly what I'm talking about. So if you're, like, you know, if you're playing an E flat and you're in the third position there, like you were just showing us, yeah. um, it's useful to almost, like I, I found, just to treat that as like a limitation. Like we're not, we're not going up this position right. and can you, can you go through the whole tune? right there oh, yeah. because if you can't then uh you know and, and assuming you repeat this over the whole fretboard you eventually get to this place where over a tune or the changes you're quite free to to move at will you don't have to stay locked into this position right um so i'll be here but it, i'll take a tune like um it's you or no one you know this tune and i'll probably recognize it if you get going. It's an E flat, and then it goes yeah. up a minor third to um, I guess this would be G flat in this key. So, so I'm in G flat, and then then it ends up in the key of B flat, right? So within mm-hmm. the first half of the tune, I'm playing three different keys, and the notion for most guitar players, well, I know the key of E flat here, and I, know, I don't know the key of G flat at all, but and I know the key of B flat only here. So I'll, I'll yeah. make them stay in this one spot, you know. So they play, we call that the third position. So, so they're yeah. in my third position. And then I'm going to play in the key of G flat, basically in this position here, you know? Yeah. And when it gets to the key of B flat, I'm in this position, which is not that different from my position for E flat. So I will limit yeah. myself, even when it goes through a bunch of keys, to this one area of the neck. Then I move up yeah. here. 
find yeah. the same three keys to it again. You know, I'm in E flat, I'm in G flat, I'm in B flat, and I haven't had to move. There, there was a video of Joe Pass doing this exact thing. I was watching this the other day where he, 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 plays, he just plays through the cycle. <laughs> he just plays through the cycle yeah. uh, of fifths in one position and right. plays all the bar chords for it. And right. it, he does it in about uh, four seconds flat. It's amazing yeah. to watch him do it. <laughs> it's like, wow, maybe I should get that down. <laughs> but yeah. uh, no, I, I really like that. Also, I think one of the drawbacks to um, so the, maybe the more standard way of uh, looking at this on the guitar. This is fun for me because I'm, guitar is my main instrument and I wasn't expecting going here today, but uh, this is a lot of fun. If you're playing, let's say, let's say you're playing uh, um, the first set of changes on that tune and the next tune has another 2-5 that's a minor third up. You could say to yourself, well, I'll just take this shape and move it a minor third up. But right. what I've noticed, the problem with that is that um, it's a benefit on the guitar because you can now use the, the way the system is laid out on the guitar to your advantage while well, I know all my thinking just goes up a minor third, but also a problem with that method instead of what you're recommending is we're learning to stay in one position and go through the whole tune like that is you, you don't develop a familiarity uh, with uh, the actual notes in the lines the same way, you know, like if you learn the outlines in, in a, in a certain key and then just transpose it up by the shape of the whole line, you could, you could lose all the associations with the actual notes and pitches over that. It, and, uh, from what I found is applying pressure to staying in one position. It forces you to really have to understand what you're doing in, in, a, in, a, in another way. Uh, yeah, there's great advantages of guitar that you can completely just transpose the shape up, you know, moving a line up. There's a great thing about that because you, you, you salvage the same articulations and you can do the same kind of thing. And then there's also advantages to like we were talking about staying in in one spot and finding the new new way to play it. So I'm going to make my decisions based on, again, my articulations, you know. If it really needs yeah. to be articulated in a different way, and even though theoretically I can play in the same position, which I'm advocating, but I'm not going to sacrifice my <laughs> articulations for the sake of, you know, some system, you know, so. I, I totally agree. I totally yeah, agree. So, I think there's... Uh, so now, that, I did not have to do that. To move yeah. up, I know where I am in, in this particular key, and for that particular line, I didn't need to do a, um, some particular shape or slurring that was necessary. You know. Well, I'm gonna oh, yeah. I'm gonna really encourage you to write this book because uh, I think you should. I think uh, I think it'd be good for guitar players to have, uh, especially more of your resources. I know you have on your on your website you have some compositions that you made for a guitar ensemble. If I'm not mistaken. Oh, a lot, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I haven't those I haven't actually uh, dove into as as much as your books, but I, I probably would really enjoy them. I, I, I love guitar ensemble. It's a it's a tricky one because um, let's face it, guitar players are not known for reading. Oh, t completely. And 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 there's there's several reasons for that. In defense of all guitar players, <laughs> I'm I'm a I'm a good reading guitar player. But it, part of the reason is, is that you can play a note so many different ways, you know? Yeah. And then if they do, if they are sight reading and they play this F here and they should have played it here, then the next part of the line is going to be a mess, you know? And, and then again, sometimes they just don't read enough. They should be practicing reading. But, but there are issues with even just all string playing that, you know, if you're in the wrong position the next little bit, that chromatic thing's not going to, not going to, um, be easy to read um but it's that, i mean for me that highlights the importance of not just reading single pitches either yeah. you have to read larger forms especially seeing where you're going on the guitar because if you're if, you, if you're going to be thrown into like 
12th position all of a sudden and you're playing this line in a way that's not helping you get there or or you know there's there's all kinds of ways you can strategize that but yeah you really got to be looking ahead and looking at larger chunks right i've had someone come in just recently in this semester and tried to play a line off the page and they played in, in at least three different positions to play the line and I went, okay, what's the highest note in the line? And maybe they, they pointed at this note. What's the lowest note in the line? It was this uh, all in one spot. So yeah. even if they just said it's this C and this C, there's still all the notes are in one spot. So you have to look beginning and, okay, so this range, I can put my fingers in that entire range, and then I'm comfortable. You know? I wonder. I wonder even how many guitar players have that committed to memories. Like, if you looked at a staff and you saw a low A, like two lines below the treble clef, and you saw a high A, how many would know that that fifth position would would perfectly uh, just get you there? Because even that committing a few of those okay. to memory would say would be right. well worth the effort. Right. And that. Yeah. And most tunes aren't even that big a range, you know. So. <laughs> so yeah. 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 So uh, that's that's one of my first recommendations. Look look ahead, glance through the whole chart, and kind of see. Is there one spot where most of these notes lie? And then if you have to shift, you know, one note or two out of out of a fret, you know, it's you can make those. And, and as you as you've been bringing up, there's there's articulation issues though too, because uh, you might actually want to play the line in a way where you're sliding a couple of the notes or doing pull offs or something yeah. like that. And and for, for me as well, that'll take precedence over yeah. um, over something. I can gonna do that. Oh yeah, that. <laughs> I have no articulation control over that. I know. Uh, yeah, yeah, that one, uh, that one kind of. It feels like you. Um, feels like you stumbled all of a sudden. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not no, that's really interesting. Like trumpet, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. Yeah, I'm yeah. Kidding. No, I got to. No, uh, we're used to taking the brunt of jokes. No, trumpet I, plays. I, yeah. I play a lot of instruments. I mean, I learned how to play bassoon, flute. I actually got a pretty good tone on flute. You know, I, yeah, I, I do not. I have a violin. It's just a wall prop. You know, I play. Uh, I play mandolin sometimes. I, you know, do a lot of things. But I try to play trumpet, and I practice buzzing on a mouthpiece. And I bought. Oh, yeah. I bought a trumpet at a pawn shop, and uh, I got so frustrated one day. This was many, many years ago. <laughs> I pulled off the freeway on the way to North Texas, and found a dumpster. <laughs> 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 and, and oh, I, nothing nothing but net man it was it's frustrating so yeah <laughs> any jokes i make about trumpet it's with due respect for what you can do <laughs> yeah it's quite humbling too like an instrument like piano or guitar just playing a one high note is really not an issue on trumpet you know that's uh that's a lot of work going into that yeah there's no uh, no drama when i play a high b flat <laughs> yeah yeah i'll put my louis armstrong against any musician in the world yeah yeah, fair enough. Yeah. One of the things I love about the guitar, though, is that because it's, I mean, uh, because of the chaos that's going on on the fretboard, essentially, there, there's a lot of different systems out there for playing. And, and you'll often find, you know, someone like Joe Pass, he's just he's a master at his system, or uh, all, all these different guitar players have ways of organizing their thinking on the instrument. And there's a lot of really creative things going on, even, even to the point where like one classical piece or one jazz piece is almost just an exploration of this whole different system for putting chords down on a guitar that maybe someone else doesn't even use that much. Right. And it, it can be really an interesting instrument in that regard. Yeah, it, it is. There's not as much established uh, tradition about how to play it, you know. I mean, yeah. this, the pick, that, you know, I mean. The, you know, you... Someone said, you know, if there's a, 
If there's a scouts guitar are, players, there's probably two. These are my yeah. favorites. Yeah, so that, that's all I have. But, but, you know, but how to hold them and, and, you know, which one to use, much less, you know, how to hold them. You know, Chrysler, Jonathan Chrysler? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's, you know, he buys some very expensive pick and then he takes a knife to it and cuts it and then does all these extra things to it to get the sound that he likes out of it. I know Matheny apparently uses yeah. the back of a pick. Have you heard yeah. that? Yeah. Because it has, it has a much different sound. It's softer. And I, uh, that blew my mind when I started trying that. I was like, that's how he's getting this really... Because uh, for me, his sound has the trebles just cut right off the top. Right. And right. I, and I, I kind of like that because I'm not, I'm not... For jazz, I'm not really into like a twangy sound on the treble right. strings. And I always thought it was like an EQ thing. But it's mm-hmm. his pick that's uh, probably pushing a lot of this, uh, this kind of sweeter tone out. Yeah, well, it's really cool. But but that you know, since we're talking about improv, this has a lot to do with it. Just deciding what's what is that sound before you even think about what a note is, and those are things you have to think about. Like you know, I'll play the pick in different ways, and I also play a lot you know with my fingers too. You know, where I'm just hiding the pick, you know, because that that pads in my fingers. I can't play with nails like you yeah. real guitar players because I play piano. <laughs> I know. So this is a problem because you're walking around to set a claws in your right hand. And you have yeah. nothing. And then as soon as you start playing piano, those, those when they're long enough to use on the guitar, they're just banging the piano. And I've, I've right. had that problem for a long time. You but, uh, breaking, you know? Yeah. And that actually is a big issue. I mean, I'm, I'm getting ready for a classical guitar. Uh, I'm finishing up a classical guitar degree right now. And I, I just literally broke a nail on my right hand and I got to cut them all off and let them all regrow together. And it's, it's a nightmare because playing the pieces now, they, they don't sound good because you're, you know, you're thrown off by like half an inch or whatever it is. And it, it, it feels odd for your body. It's not, uh, I've never been happy about that situation with the classical guitar, but I, I like the sound of the nails on it. But The, the trumpet players laughing at us talking about physical things about the instruments going, yeah, look at my lips. <laughs> I know. But, yeah. No, when, it, when it's dry outside and you, you, and you put off practicing for half a day or skip yeah. a day. Yeah. And the muscles grow back, and then they're all different every time. The only thing yeah. that's the same is the air. Yeah. <laughs> so well, the air, the the air in the ear. The piano is played by gravity, you know, so. <laughs> yeah. You drop your hand on the keyboard, and you get a big sound right away. <laughs> so yeah, exactly. It's just a matter of controlling that a little bit. But. I'm curious. I'm going to steer this a completely different way. What were your experiences? Sure. You said you started late, Bert. But... What were your experiences, like even in utero, first couple of years of life? What kind of music was going on? Well, my dad um, was a big band aficionado. Yeah. And he was also, um, I know this had a big impact on me. He also was the, the first guy probably in Dallas, Texas, that actually owned a stereo. Mm. Because they didn't have stereo shops, so you couldn't even, you know, people don't buy stereo stuff anymore. But, but he actually ordered components from Chicago and he was a, a furniture designer and architect and he built his own stereo components, JBL speakers, all nine yards and played big band stuff all the time. But we've got, you know, old home movies and I'm sitting there bopping with my foot, you know, in time with the music at a very early age. So it's probably no small wonder why I have this rhythmic um, sense, yeah. you know, yep. that it's just ingrained in me. People that say they start late, but then become as accomplished as musician or, you know, a performer or whatever, as, as, you know, get to these higher levels of 
you know, being able to improvise jazz, especially so probably the, the highest level musicians, that and composing, uh, it's just slowed down improvisation, right? Yeah. But I find that their early childhood environments have to have been rich, even though they started late in life, say with lessons or, you know, you're on construction. Right, physically playing, but, but yeah, being aware of the music. And back when I was in public schools, this was, you know, a thousand years ago, but we actually sang quite a bit, you know? Yeah. And, and we, we learned tunes. I'm not, you know, we learned folk songs. We learned patriotic songs. We actually sang every day. So that, man, that gets it right in the ear and makes it part of a physical experience. And so when I decided to, to actually try to play piano, um, I had a picture of what I wanted yeah. to go for. And then it was just a matter of doing yeah. the, the repetition of technique just to find out where all these notes were. Yeah, mm -hmm. that, that picture's this audiation vocabulary comes from all the repertoire that you heard and then performed. Right. So once you yeah. learn and perform, you can audiate, and from that audiation vocabulary, you've got, that's where improvisation, you don't need to read and write. Right. It's helpful, because, mm -hmm. you know, you, you can't read symphony, you can't read big band scores, you can't, right, if you can't read. But if yeah. you don't, you can still make, you know, the... the the highest levels, like Errol Garner, who couldn't read a lick, uh, didn't know theory at all, but yet could audiate like crazy and tell his musician, you know, and, and actually arrange and play, oh, what do I want the trumpets to play? And he'd play it. <laughs> and okay, so when the trumpets come in, this is what you play. Uh, and they, they would have to learn it, you know, rote that way, because right. he, could, he couldn't communicate it through theory. Right. But but yeah, I'm he was glad, a monster. I'm glad that I, I learned to read. I learned to read from singing in classes and choirs and stuff, but and uh, taking some high school theory class. But man, I'm so glad that I, I want to be able to do more than what Errol was able to do as far as yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. Got a pistol with a, a point on one end and a big eraser on the other. <laughs> when you're talking about composition being improvisation, slow motion. Some of the motion is backwards. Some of <laughs> you have a chance to correct yeah. things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So always point that out to students. And I'm curious too, uh, in your conversations with uh, Dr. Gordon, when he would come in and, and visit, what were the things you'd have disagreements about or where did you come together? I'm, I'm, I'm curious if you could the, the, recall. Really the central, the central issue, the central issue that we thought about, and you know, he's argumentative guy. I'm oh, very and, excited. Uh, he's oh, he's <laughs> I'm very excited. He, um, he did not think that that you could be successful helping students with ear training after they got to the college. By that time, it was too late. They were mm. stuck with whatever their development were just because if they, like we were talking about, their audiation experiences as a child formatted them. And if they hadn't been formatted adequately by then, nothing else could be done with it. And he huh. would argue from the point of view of a lot of research. And huh. I just argued from hope. <laughs> I had nothing to back up anything I said, except I think now I could because I've had great experience with students who did not hear and I could help them hear yeah. a lot more. So Yeah, no, I, I, I think you're right and he's wrong, but I, I, I'll tell you what I think he's thinking. <laughs> I'll tell you what I think Dr. Gordon's thinking is that your aptitude is pretty solidified, even at 10. Yeah. And twelve, but but I, I've improved my improvisation by teaching this harmonic sequence over the last ten years. 
So I'm 60 now. Sure. So so 50. I'm way older than a college kid. Uh, so it's a matter of how quickly I can go. But but there's there's no reason for him to say you can't improve as a musician. Uh, and I and I, I think he would argue with himself if I were to. Well, and tell Eric, you. one of the things that I've I've been talking to Eric <laughs> a lot about this since I've known Eric over the past several months, but. Um, I think a lot of it comes down to like function of musical memory too. And, and there's probably a reason why when you're, oh, oh there we go. <laughs> Sorry. My cheerleader for my, my point here. I was going to say, I think a lot of this comes down to musical memory. So your, your ability to have a storehouse of musical vocabulary that you just by ear know, I think it's, it's, no one's going to argue it's, it, it's strongly developed when you're very, very young because we, we tend to develop all kinds of, you know, vocabulary for, for our first language when we're young. And there's probably a bit of a hijacking of that neural apparatus when you're very, very young. But assuming you get, uh, let's assume you have a decent amount of musical exposure when you're young. I, I have no doubt thinking that by committing new foreign sounds to memory, you know, through listening and being able to sing them back, like whether it's those outlines in your book or, or just new solos or whatever it is, it, your ears grow for sure. There's, there's not a doubt in my mind that you can, you could push it to a, another level. It's much harder when you're older. It's much easier uh, yeah. when you're early teens or, you know, especially, you know, the, there's a thousand trillion connections made in the brain uh, by three years old, <laughs> right? And then we lop them off to, to, and we call that learning, you know, solidifying those pathways. And if you get music in before you're three, you know, that's why I asked you about your early childhood experience is, is crucial. And I think students that come to you without having that early childhood experience, Gordon's probably yeah, right. I totally have to agree with you. Uh, but, but, right. So, but that's that lower 30th percentile. Those students don't self-select themselves to come to a college and study no, no. jazz guitar. And I, and I do think the practical no. takeaway is that the early childhood music uh, education is actually quite valuable. I think that's the whole point of this is that I know for the school system around here in Canada, a lot of people treat, you know, kindergarten music till grade six is somewhat like a, a joke, and, but it gets serious in concert band in grade and, seven. And it's almost completely backwards. Like yeah, the it, thing well, you it, do it's, it's when you're too, younger is so it's important. Too, it's too late in kindergarten. It's absolutely <laughs> too late. You're over the hill by three or four years old in my world. Wow. Well, I should thank my mom for putting us in a good preschool. Yeah, no, we were well, it's not time. preschool. It's what's going on in the home and what's going on uh, in, yeah. in utero. My dissertation explored the, yeah. the development of, of children before their birth and, and first, you know, 18 months, two years. What were they saturated with? You know, and the kids that went to church regularly had higher aptitudes. Oh, I, I see that with my students. You know, kids, uh, kids that, yeah, in or in your case, yeah. Bert, you had the stereo in the house. Music was valued in the home. And that right. once you do that, or you're going to live performances like at church or, you know, any other thing. My, you know, my dad bounced me to Toscanini and the NBC Orchestra uh, um, on my lap. He told me about that. And then we go to the Symphony Hall uh, Academy of Music in Philadelphia and hear Eugene Normandy or Maurice Andre, you know, and... And I fell in love with, you know, a, a whole lot of great music. I, I, I did not like my brother's music. <laughs> you know, yes. Eric, the question is, the question is, is but, there a study where, you know, in utero, like someone's, uh, someone's playing Schoenberg 
for for their you know to be born baby for yeah. uh, like do we have these studies <laughs> no what happens for, if you put that i don't know about schoenberg but i know a lot of people <laughs> that play beethoven you know with the or mozart yeah. right but beethoven too maybe even better than mozart because of the dynamic contrast for a, a baby because the baby in utero you're getting wobbly sound so you need a little stronger contrast and and later beethoven is you know got a lot more to it than than Mozart does. Uh, there, there's an that, interview that where get Glenn Gould's talking about what, what would happen if, uh, you know, in the culture of, of your home, you were essentially only listening to like atonal music or things that are very harmonically, yeah. uh, harmonically outside what's on the radio and, and stuff like that. I, I mean, I have no reason to think it wouldn't be anything but fantastic. Like, I think a lot of my early listening exposure just from, came from probably John Williams, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Right. We watched some of these movies. Like I think when I was younger, I I can't tell you how many times I've seen Indiana Jones and Home Alone and some of these movies. And there's some great you know stuff going on in these uh, film scores. And that probably I I can think of the Indi Indiana Jones melody like you know I, probably from an inch from death. It's just been burned into my mind. <laughs> but it's cool. I I always think uh, movie scores actually probably have a big big impact on a lot of families that don't have any musicians in the household, but they might watch a lot of film. Yeah. I wonder about that because uh, I think some people don't realize how much music underscores all those kinds of things. Some people might hear all those scores. I mean, be be aware that it's in the movie, but they're not absorbing it like you would, you know? Yeah. I think there's a, a uh, you know, you're, predis you're predisposed by your music aptitude. And then there's also intention that either you bring to it or that your family brings to you uh, musically, because you could have the greatest stereo in the world and play CDs all day long, but if you put those CDs as German language, there's no context for those for those sounds. And if nobody's communicating with you, you're not going to come away with any meaning right? Uh, just from playing CDs. So it's the interaction that's crucial. Now, you know, you can't have your your parents play a symphony because there's only two people, <laughs> you know, uh -huh. and you can't go to a symphony every night. So yeah, CDs and or recorded music is is phenomenally important. Uh, if you bring some level of intention to it, either because of innate aptitude or because of there's an intention in the house, like oh we're dancing to this or we're moving, you know, uh -huh. you're doing something to interact with it uh, actively. That active engagement and interaction is is far better than putting a CD on a, like I said, German, you're not going to pick anything up until, you know, until you For sure. use it uh, in, in context, you know. I always wondered about the repetition too, because, um, you know, it's, it's obviously a great thing to be exposed to a lot of music at any age and, and at young ages. But I, I always come back with these film scores because some of these movies, you know, how kids will just watch the same movie like a hundred times one week. There must be a reason why this like, atonal part of home alone you know violin chase scene is is really in my mind very strongly from the age of like two or three and um it, I, I have to assume it's the repetition because i could i can think of this even now i haven't watched the movie for years now and i can i can think of a lot of these weird violin parts and, and cello parts um but I, I wonder eric if uh what what impact that would have on just young kids listening to this, this you know, learning tunes, yeah, essentially. That's yeah. the whole point of tunes, right? Yeah. Is, is that we have these folk repertoire and it, and it clearly has an impact when jazz musicians learn the melodies from standards or kids learn the melodies from these folk songs or whatever the genre is. Yeah. They have their, their standard melodies and, and changes that you absorb. Yeah. But, well, 
What was the composer that Zappa played over and over as a kid? Uh, one of the far out 20th century. Uh, trying to remember, but he just, Zappa just, he wore that record out and had to buy another one, I think. And uh, mm -hmm. uh, I'm trying to remember who it is, but it's one of these 20th century guys that, you know, top 10, Schoenberg, Berg, it wasn't any of those. Uh, oh, I was somebody, some, I think somebody, American. Uh, but anyway, he, you know, it's pretty crazy stuff. Well, he, you know, he wore that vinyl out to, to get it down, to, to understand it. And think of that, you know, what, what kind of influence that had on, on his flexibility, <laughs> you know, totally. Well, that's what I was saying. I would think there's, there's, there's something very interesting about musical memory. And I noticed with the, like Bert, in Bert's book, The Outlines, um, committing those, me those outlines to memory helped a lot with navigating on my specific instrument. But now I notice some of the outlines, they just gave me the ability to hear changes. So I, I won't even necessarily be playing the exact outline, but the outline has now activated this skill of being able to hear the change. And th that's fascinating to me. And, and uh, yeah, it's just, I, I can't believe how just effective it was. And, and in the jazz community, just learning solos is often the prescription for learning how to improvise, whether it's learning a whole solo or, or learn little bits of it or licks. And I, I think that's almost kind of the, the point is that when some of the stuff's in your memory, you might not draw directly on the exact thing that you learn, but it, it now kind of primes your mind for the context and you can navigate through the change a little better. I, I played with a, an old, um, older bebop guy when I, years and years ago and not educated about the music. I mean, he wasn't going to talk to you about chord scales or, or outlines or anything like that, but, but he knew all these things, you know, he just knew that language like we we're talking about Errol Garner. And I know he called a tune one time. I didn't know. I'm, I, I can I just tell me where the bridge goes. And he didn't know the changes to the bridge. But he didn't tell me he didn't know the changes to the bridge. He just turned the trumpet to me and, and played outline one for the two chords there and then played outline three and then played another outline. And that's how he taught me the bridge. He never said did he, did he play those outlines knowing that you knew them or did he no. or he just you know what? No, that's how <laughs> okay. universal they are, you know? Yeah. He yeah. just he played them and I went I, and I knew exactly, even if I didn't know my own book, I mean I could hear <laughs> the changes. He picked three things that just like outlined, literally outlined what was going on. So I knew the changes then. So we can play the, play the tune, you know? It's amazing how, uh, you know, those outlines are, it's not just jazz. Like, if you look at Bach and Mozart, like, Bach is just an outline composer. You can, you can it almost seems like he just put the uh, chord tones on the strong beats and then just connected yeah. everything. And that, uh, there's actually another person we're trying to interview. His name's David Fuentes. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. No. He's, got a, he's got a book called Figuring Out Melody. Sure. But he essentially discovered you know, the same thing you did is that when, if you can hear the chord tones on the strong beats, there's ways to get to them. And that's what everyone's really doing. But yeah. it's really cool. It's not anything unique. Yeah. I studied Bach and I studied Mozart and I studied all these people. And, you know, it seemed pretty clear. I just, you know, <laughs> wasn't anything new. No. Yeah. It is, it is counterpoint. We are improvising counterpoint, yeah. you know, because I'm counting on the bass player to navigate from the root of this chord to the root of the next chord the root of the next word and yeah. i'm in, in a sense my my obligation or my contract part of the contract is i'm navigating some other chord tone 
I'm not going root to root because that's parallel walk because we've lost the we've lost that voice, you know. So For sure. it's it's fundamentally improvising counterpoint. Have you have you played around much with uh, uh, improvising counterpoint on the guitar or the keyboard with uh, with figured bass? So you have it you have a, you have a melody that's going to be the baseline or or, or or whatever. I mean, I think Bach often taught his students with the bass lines first and then ha- taught them to do that. But I found that that's very, it, it feels like the same type of thinking and playing that's going on when you learn to play outlines, the way that he was using the figured bass. Um, exactly. Yeah, and I, um, I had a great time uh, doing that on the piano and the guitar. Right. I do that, uh, yeah, I mean, I, to me, I, I think of, any jazz standard is essentially a, you know, that we've got that baseline and I'm agreeing to supply whatever the figure is that makes it sound like it's going to be F minor. My job is to play the A flat over the F, you know, but, uh, totally. but it, it, beyond just improvisation, that's the kind of way I compose too. So when yeah, I, compose, I, when I, I compose, I'm, I, again, I'm, when I am ready to start talking about pitches, because a lot of times it's rhythmic gestures and, and articulations that I start with, but um, when I don't even have that though, it may be just like goose eggs on the page, you know? It's really the two outer voices, those voices that make it interesting, you know? So, yeah. you know, yes, so that is that kind of figured base thing. I think that's why making some of pages so, are so useful as well. That, that, you know, that I follow around. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was, I was going to say, I think that's why making etudes is so useful as well, because it, it's not like you're, uh, it's not like you're only working on composition or improv. It's a very similar thought process. And you can, you can tell with Bach, um, it would seem incomprehensible for a human being to compose that much music unless they had a system. And so he, he was very clear about his thinking. And, uh, there's, I don't think anyone here would doubt that he could improvise. Uh, you almost would have to, if you could put that amount of output, out. um, Recently, I was reading about um, just a bit of the history with how they were teaching uh, figured bass. And uh, there's, there's an interesting guy online. I think his name is Derek Reams. He's a, he's a theory professor. I think he's in Europe. But he's, he's got some interesting work on, on Baroque counterpoint and figured bass. But a lot of it apparently was quite practical. You know, the, the master gave you the melody. Don't worry about that. Don't worry about the bass line. I'll just teach you how to harmonize it and create the figured bass. And um i just started you just compose the you just improvise the baseline and once you have the skill of harmonizing it that just comes along with you and it's so cool uh to to watch that kind of unfold in real time yeah um the, i i want to ask you one more thing um uh, i just want to be conscious of your time though uh bird um i really like the way you talk about uh diminished chords because uh it makes them in most in a lot of cases make a lot more sense um, like this, this, this diminished chord that con- comes up in a lot of tunes, um, like if you're in the key of C, you'll often see an E flat diminished, but, uh, sometimes maybe thinking about that as D sharp diminished kind of points more to its fu- function. I'm wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about how you're thinking on this whole process. Yes. Uh, if in a traditional theory class where you find diminished chords, there's only one spot mm-hmm. and that is on the seven in harmonic minor. All right. And so uh, if I'm in the key of C, the closely related keys would be D minor. That's the two chord. E minor is the closely related key. That's the three chord. Mm-hmm. If I get to either one of those keys, the diminished chord is the one that points me there. So no matter which way I'm going, it doesn't really matter if I'm going up or down. Mm-hmm. 
Mm -hmm. To me, that's still a D-sharp diminished, right? Uh -huh. um, and if I think about it as E-flat diminished, and a lot of people get really confused about it, they'll find a tune. Wave, I was thinking about this last week with right. Wave. It, it, they, they write it as a B-flat diminished, and you can find weeks of internet discussion about how to justify <laughs> figuring out what that chord is. But they spell it as an A-sharp diminished, right? So that's, okay, it looks, like, like, the five, it looks like the five of six. Or it, it looks is. like the, that's the relevant yeah. minor. Right? Yes. Yeah. It's the relevant minor. And we're just yeah. making it more difficult. It, but it, the fact that it doesn't go there upsets a lot of people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Are deceptive cadences. But you bring up a good point. If we're in, if we're playing wave, and let's say we're we're in the key of D, right. maybe, mostly maybe. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. There's going to be all kinds of deceptive resolutions that no one questions. No one questions A7 going to B minor in another tune. If you're in the exactly. key of D, like no one, no one's going to say it's that's not A7. A7. So, so another one to take, I'll take your first question, that E minor. Um, fundamentally, the, the, the consonant notes in E minor are in G, B. Everything else is by definition dissonant because they, it wants to go back, right? Mm -hmm. That C wants to go back to B. The A wants to go back to G. The F sharp wants to go here. And the D sharp really wants to go here. Mm -hmm. So if I, take a, if I add up all the dissonant notes, which doesn't mean they sound bad, which means that they want to move, right? Uh -huh. um, that's a diminished chord. Yeah, you get the, the so, so that's top part of a flat nine chord, or, right, or right. Like, what did you want to call it? Yeah, so, yeah. so, the, the, so the, the, uh, I would never call that an E flat because it's not E flat says it wants to go down. Sharps want to go up, flats want to go down. It's pointing up. A box thing in the wrong key, but you know the, the idea. Uh, you can, you can that that uh, that outline uh, um, is in so many Bach tunes. I mean, it's in that it's in that fourth invention. That 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 uh, I love that. I love that right. so much. The right. uh, the third on the five chord, the third going to the the flat nine. Right, but it's so pretty. It's, yeah, so I'm gonna call it. I'm gonna call it diminished in relationship to where it points, even if it doesn't go there. Yeah. Because yeah. it kind of, because um, I'm a literate musician, <laughs> part of, you know, and um, some people say, well, it's just a passive diminished. Well, that doesn't mean it, it can't also be derived from a specific key, you know? So uh -huh. when you do see this diminished chord, you know, passing chord to go to the uh, wrong resolution that's still still the d, d sharp diminished and i i don't mean to beat a point to death but it's really so i know what the player i don't have to think about what e flat diminished means nobody would spell it e flat g flat b double flat d double flat so first of all i don't have to introduce anything but the two notes that are different okay so what i mean by that is that in the keys two, there are no sharps and flats yeah. Well, my little hand signals, this is just going to audio, it's not really helpful, but no yeah. sharps and flats. The key signature of E minor has one sharp and a leading tone. So that D sharp diminished supplies the two notes that differentiate E minor from the key of C major. Those are the notes I need to hear in order to get to that key, and they're in that chord. So if I'm in exactly. C, F naturals, and I've got D naturals, right? So... So it's D sharp, that F sharp, 
changes my entire expectation. Right? You know, so. Yeah, and it really it really does sound it really does sound different. I mean that that changes in uh, that changes in body and soul too. That that right. that, that passing air quote right. <laughs> diminished chord. Yeah, there's but, a great uh, one on, on uh, someday my prince will come. Um, yeah. Oh, so um, yeah. In, the, in the bridge, people will call that a D flat diminished. Saying it's C sharp because that's the D minor chord. Yeah. It's an A triad. There's an A triad here. Why would I think D flat when I'm playing the notes of an A triad? Yeah. Right? I'm, I'm curious, where did your thinking on that uh, come from? Did you were you just translating the general idea, you know, we have uh, we only have diminished chords coming off one spot in normal theory off the harmonic minor. Or where? Or did, did someone explicitly uh, teach you to no, think like this? I'm just curious. I just, I remember a jam session, you know, when I first started playing, we were playing wave, and, and that second chord just almost <laughs> broke up the jam session because nobody sure. could play over it. Everybody's trying to justify in all kinds of ways, and so I I thought about it and go, where, where do we find diminished chords? The only place they function. You know, we've got all the diatonic chords in major and minor system, the ones in, in minor are from harmonic minor. We get harmony from harmonic minor. It's easy to think yeah. about. You know? yeah. So even just the difference between C and A minor, the difference is that G sharp. That is the note. So it's not an A flat when we call it. Yeah, I only, I only, uh, I only push on it a bit because uh, this made a big difference. I remember when I was studying harmony, you know, kind of on my own, just trying to get this together over the last five or ten years. Diminished chords are something I always just thought of them as, uh, you know, this extension on the five chord in minor, yeah. and, and that seemed like the place I was seeing them a lot. But then these other uses of diminished chords, where people were calling them passing, it wasn't something I was really getting control of. And um, it was actually after I started singing the outlines on the two five of three, right. something about these. And going over what you said about the passing diminished chords, because right. it often shows up in that spot. It often it's shows up as a five yeah. of three. Yeah, uh, it all just kind of clicked, and and you can hear the lines make they they make total sense even if they're uh, not resolving where they go. Um, Another misconception about diminished chords is that oh, it's a diminished chord. I've got to use a diminished scale. So then that was a part of it for me is that I never really, the diminished scale never really uh, sounded, uh, I couldn't get it to kind of fly the way I wanted right. to. But when I think of it as the five of something else, right. um, or, or a secondary, you know, dominant of some kind, it, it makes total sense. A diminished scale is beautiful, sound. a beautiful sound. And I will use that as, a, sure. as an alternative color um, anywhere I feel like it. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. But, the, but the point is, in most of these situations, what's called for there, like I'm in A minor, if I introduce a half hole, that, that, I mean the whole half diminished scale or something, it's introducing notes that are foreign from every key we're in. Exactly, exactly. So if you use it, use it knowing that you're going to introduce some notes that are really not part of the, the picture we're playing here. Well, and yeah, and we have your rules from your, your, your rules for theory. It doesn't sound good, doesn't sound good. Like number right. one doesn't sound good, doesn't two doesn't. Doesn't sound yeah, good, and uh, yeah, important. obviously, yeah, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think people would, you know, that that presume to plug in a certain scale at a certain time are often surprised by the notes they play, and then you know, because they are playing some notes they didn't really hear, 
or don't yeah. make sense in the context. So, so they're thinking theoretically and not audiationally. And if yeah. you play stuff that doesn't match the, the function, doesn't mean that you're not audiating. It means you're playing around with the context you're in. Yeah. Or, it's funny. I've, I've told students that we can tell the difference. We meaning some, some uh, experienced jazzers. When they play this note or this sound in the appropriate spot, I mean, because they've made an artistic choice to, to, to be surprising or something, or when they're doing it just because they're clueless, you know? Like, yeah. how do you know the difference? But, you know, we can tell the difference. There'll be times that Bill, Bill Evans, for instance, that will harmonically play an ambiguous chord or a chord that contradicts the situation, and it's the perfect artistic choice. And my student will play that in another spot and it's like, no, that's wrong. You know, how can you say that's wrong? Because it's just a matter of handling the, the entire bigger picture of it. But yeah, they're not hearing it. Yeah, and I think there's a great analogy here with with uh, with speaking is uh, when we're speaking, we're, we're traditionally trying to think of the point we're trying to make. We're actually not that concerned about, we're definitely not concerned about letters. Like there's, right. we're not thinking letters at all. Right. And we're not thinking phonemes. We're thinking uh, not even words. We're kind of thinking of the point. And, and it's fascinating to do this in real time. I always like doing this example with students. I, I actually don't know right now the next words that are coming out. Yeah. I just have a general idea of where it needs to go. And the words almost just miraculously show up in time in the right order. Hopefully, if you're, well, you can see I, I, I say you do know, <laughs> but, but it's happening so quickly, we don't notice it. And the same thing with audiation. If you're thinking, to, if you're trying to stop and think what words are going to come out next, then you get, you know, people who talk like, you know, politicians often. <laughs> but I almost, I almost <laughs> they, imagine they if you try to learn how to speak English or a second language, the way a lot of people are learning to improvise, could you imagine someone just almost just standing next to you saying, say words now, and you're just trying to say random words. You're like, okay, store. Yeah, yeah uh, no, you can't do uh, it. You have to, sausage. Like, has there's to no come relationship. It has to come from something. <laughs> it, has, it definitely comes from some kind of intention. But I, I say you, you, you do know. Because you've practiced for, you know, however old you are, you know, sure. minus minus right. one. And even you know, before that, that you developed that yeah. listening vocabulary ahead of time. On the other side of exactly what you're saying here, there, there's a point as English speakers and as musicians where we learn a new word or a new sound. Yeah. And we yeah. do want to work that into conversation at first. Exactly. It's a little contrived, you know, like why did he drop that spelling B word in the middle of this sentence? But it's kind of yeah. a way of building your vocabulary. And sometimes I know that, that if I'm trying to experience a new sound, I'm going to plug it in. And I can, I can point through places in Chick Corea's development or other artists' development where you can hear <laughs> they've discovered a new sound and they're overusing it as a way of kind of getting it into their larger vocabulary. You know, so I, I completely agree. And I, I'm often not a fan of the divide that says that it, all has to, it all has to be completely natural or automatic. Or it all has to be, you know, there's, there's, there's a time and a place for both of those different uh, skill sets, for sure. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's, so, that's yeah, so for me, I'm still guiding my practice time and my improv in, in real time on, with other musicians on kind of letting these two sides, you know, guide me. I'm certainly going to go try to play as much from the flow and from the intuitive and from what I know. And like we're speaking now, we're not pre-thinking, we're speaking. But yeah. then... But then I'm also kind of paying attention to what I'm playing and trying to figure out, you know, what needs to come next. Just like we do when we're speaking, we're thinking, what's the point I need to make? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I mean, this whole talk about the secondary dominance, whether the two fives or fives, I feel like this, this was such a natural um, 
progressing point for musicians at large, whether classical musicians or jazz musicians, because if you have this vocabulary for playing two fives, mm -hmm. uh, learning to use them in a new context seems like the next natural extension. And so if you're learning to play two five of two or two five of three, you can take a lot of the vocabulary you already have. And now you're starting to hear it in this new context underneath another uh, function. And uh, yeah, that's a perfect example for me of being able to you know, take something to mastery and assimilate it into the, however you want to say it, the subconscious or automatic thinking, and now start to even learn to do that in a new context or a new spot. And uh, yeah, yeah it's, it's been a lot of fun. Yep, young kids, I know you're working with young kids a lot that, from working with these Suzuki camps. I wouldn't try to get them to play in a lot of different keys at first, of course. You know, it's like if we can just find triad notes, I'm just going to, you know, like this. Um, oh, wow, wow. You know, so we, we literally picked notes out of the air, but, but um, <laughs> kids would, would improvise based on these kind of notes and having these as our goal notes, not any kind of chord tones or anything, just like fundamental notes that are in physics. And then kids would start using a leading tone when they wanted to aim to the five of whatever key we were playing. And I would ask them, and they heard it. They didn't, I didn't say, oh, you can use a leading tone or you can modulate using the five of five. I didn't complicate anything like this at the beginning, but they'd heard it. They played Clemente, they played Mozart, they played every piece that modulated the five and used that leading tone to get there. So that was part, you know, they added it before I would have added it, you know, because they already heard it and experienced it. So it's amazing, yeah. you know. What, uh, yeah, that's 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 really interesting. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah there were some really interesting kids at, the, at those camps. You know, we get them doing their Suzuki literature and then improvise on it, and then have them yeah. transpose it to either parallel or relative minor and do the same melody, like a folk song. You know, twinkle twinkle yeah, minor. That's good because Gordon, uh, Gordon used to be anti. Yeah, Gordon yeah, used to be pretty anti Suzuki because of the lack of the the literature was almost all major, almost all duple. It was very little triple and very little minor, but you're suggesting now that they've uh, grown up a little. I, I know the, the, the RCM know. for, or the, the Suzuki classical guitar literature, I, I use some of it with my students. There's a lot of songs in triple and a lot of songs in minor in the yeah. earlier grades, for sure. Great. For sure. And, and like Bert was saying, I mean, um, Eric knows this well with me. All my students know how to play twinkle in minor and in triple because it's, they already know the tune. So it's such a it's such a great thing to just get them to do right after. Or I or you can even do you know twinkle in seven eight. It's hilarious. I might not get them to actually play it, but I'll play it in seven and say what you know what changed? Something's not right. Is this is this the normal twinkle or is this the triple one or is what is this? This is something totally different. But at many camps, I've given them a, a choice of how we want to play twinkle because we're going to play twinkle at a concert. This is even like non-Suzuki camps. Yeah. Most often they choose to play it in three and in minor. No, this is my experience too. Nice. This is yeah. my, I don't yeah. know why. Uh, and we we name it some <laughs> Russian thing because it sounds like some kind of Russian <laughs> bad thing. Or it sounds like the Israeli national anthem, which is Twinkle. I get a lot of, I get a lot of kids telling me it sounds like uh, Darth Vader's Twinkle Twinkle Little Star or yeah. Darth Vader Twinkle. Yeah. And they, I'm like, which one do you want to play? Or the Very. best the best response I had, I played major twinkle for a student and then I played minor and I said describe both. The one one of them said major sounds like the music my grandma listens to. And then he said the minor one sounds like Darth Vader's theme. And I was like, okay, I guess we know which one you want to play. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of fun though. A lot of fun. Oh man. 
Well, Bert, it's, I, been, it's been so fun talking. I, want to, I just want to give you or Eric the floor. Um, I've, I've really been having a blast, though. Oh, yeah, I bet. Oh, yeah. That's what I do for the B. You have a hit the road jack B yeah. section for, for Twinkle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's, my kids get it that way, and then the other way they get it is uh, alternating sevens and fives. Twinkle, twinkle, yeah. little star. How I wonder what you are. Oh. <laughs> that's wild. That's that's crazy. Twinkle. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, I got a bunch of them. Mess with them once they learn Twinkle the right way. So yeah, yeah, it's been a pleasure. It's been really nice uh, hearing. Appreciate the invitation. Yes. It was a yeah. It was it was a lot of fun to chat, and uh, you know, like I've said a few times, your your work's had a really positive impact on me, and it's been. Um, I'm so glad I found it, and I'm so glad you're, you know, you're willing to come by to give have a chat for an hour with us. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, Zoom me again sometime. We'll just talk straight guitar, and you know. Now that I now that I didn't know we were going to go there, I'm very excited, <laughs> and I, I'm I'm interested to hear more about uh, the ideas you have for this book because I, I I I'm very curious about it, and uh, so far I've been very much in alignment with what you're yeah. what you're talking about. Yeah. Alignment being the key word. <laughs> I know. I don't. <laughs> we'll set. Well, when it's ready, we'll send this out to everybody but the trumpet players. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, what's funny is the uh, colleague of mine who's going to be interested in listening to this is a trumpet player. <laughs> well, he'll find yeah. out I threw away a trumpet. What's he going to think of me now? You know? <laughs> oh, he, he loved your work. He he uh, he came up with the word. Actually, alignment is the way that he was trying to describe. Uh, specificity and in, in getting the chord tones to yeah. come out in his playing yeah. and uh i lent him a copy of your book and he, you know it just blew his mind he loved it we're good man yeah, Send him my way. and i thank you for for uh, trumpeting my work there <laughs> <laughs> say hello to wendy if you run into her I'll or, will, jo or john for that matter right. if he remembers me wendy does i'll do that all right Bert, thanks, for the invite. thanks so much see you again take care <laughs>